I want to talk to you today about a topic that's about as foreign to us as a language we don't speak. I want to talk to you today about serving. And the reason why we don't think about that very much is in the few situations in our life when we think about serving, it's pretty well dictated by the circumstance. A lot of you, probably me included, when we leave this place today, we'll head for a restaurant. Now, when you drive into the parking lot of a restaurant, you're not sitting in your car wondering, am I going to be expected to serve or is that person going to serve me? Because the situation dictates that you are going to be served and you expect that. One of the things that we don't articulate very well, or maybe we never think about it a whole lot, but is as we walk into that restaurant and we take our seat, there's sort of a, not only an expectation of who's going to serve whom, there's the idea of whose value in that situation is greater. If I'm the customer, I'm here, and the server is here. And that's toxic. That's a problem. Because the moment we let that get into our groundwater of our thinking, it can color a lot of relationships and make a lot of unhealthy situations. Fact of the matter is, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you were meant to serve. In fact, that's one of the chief characteristics of a follower of Jesus, is that you are a servant. And I'm going to talk about that today. And as I said, I'm, I know it's going to challenge us all, myself included, because, again, as I said, the concept of serving is about as foreign as a language that you and I don't speak. This series, The Jesus Encounters, is taking us in the last, through the last week of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection. In fact, we will close out this series with the thief on the cross and Palm Sunday, and then on Sunday, the resurrection and Jesus' encounter with Thomas. So this is, to me, a very special thing. And I love preaching on Jesus. I, I mean, we talk about Jesus every week, but I love it when we can, just, we can just talk about him only. And what we're going to look at today happened on Thursday night. Jonathan told you about something that happened on Tuesday night of the last week. I want to talk to you about something that happened on Thursday night. And this is all in the Gospel of John chapter 13. So I hope you have a Bible with you. If not, I hope you have an electronic device with a Bible app on it because I want you to be able to see these things. And I'm going to just walk you through the story and I want you to see what God is saying to you. By the way, you know, I want, let me encourage you, if you're a New Springer, bring, bring some access to a Bible with you when you come here because I want you to own it. I don't, I don't want to just say it and you walk out and say, well, Mark said this. Who cares what Mark says? I promise you, five seconds before you die, you care less what Mark said. What you need to know is what does the Word of God say. So let me encourage you at least to do that or get your cell phone out and get on a Bible app and, and go, go through this because this is something that you need to take with you the rest of your life. Now, this story happens in John 13, and it's kind of cute or interesting because God is going to tell you the story, but before he gets into the, the sequence of the narrative, he's going to give you backstory, and the backstory is really, really important. It's if God is saying, you're not going to be able to understand this narrative if you don't get the background information. So as you open up John 13, in chapter 13, verse 1, you're going to get backstory before we get into it. So let's look at this. Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. Now, we know that Jesus knew he was about to die. It's Thursday night. He's going to be crucified on Friday afternoon, actually Friday morning and Friday afternoon. So he is less than 24 hours away from the moment where they nail him to a cross, hammer a crown of thorns, those thorns slicing through his scalp, pull out his beard, spit in his face. He's going to hang on a cross for six hours, so it's less than 24 hours away. So Jesus knew. The word, Greek word there for knew means he, he, he was fully cognizant of it. This is something that there was no uncertainty about in his mind. He knew, that, But notice the language. It doesn't say he knew that it was time to die. It says, and the Greek word is very important here. It says he knew it was time to return. 
Now, that word means in literally to leave one place and go to another. Aren't you glad that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that death is not the cosmic stop sign? You're just going to leave one place and go to another. You know, the problem with death is everything we can see makes us feel like it's the end. My precious mother-in-law went to be with the Lord last week. I preached her funeral on Wednesday. And God, it was, it was so exciting because even in her funeral service, and Greenwood Funeral Home in Fort Worth was packed out with people who come. I stopped counting at 20 people who responded to accept Christ in the invitation. I thought if this thing works like Amway, she's still racking up points. <laughs> but we went out to the little cemetery in Weatherford, Mary Alice's family cemetery. And, and it was a late interment service and the sun was going down. And I stood by the door of the casket as I have a thousand times, uh, the door of the hearse as I have a thousand times. And the pallbearers, three of my sons included, took the casket out. And we walked up to the tent. And I remember as I stood there and talked to the family, I put my hand on the casket and I got to thinking, you know what, everything I can see looks bad today. But I thought about this scripture that I was going to share with you. I knew I was going to share it with you even then as I stood there in her funeral and I thought, you know what, my, my mother-in-law hasn't died. She just left one place and went to another. Do you have that assurance in your heart today? I mean, who, who the heck cares about religion? Man, if you, you need to know that when you die, you're going to leave one place and go to, go, go to be with the, with the Lord. Okay, now look at this. He had loved, this is great, he had loved his disciples during his earthly ministry, and now he loved them to the very end. Literally, it means he loved them all the way through. Now, that's interesting because when you look at the story of Jesus the last three and a half years before we get to this Thursday night, the disciples had this up and down relationship with Jesus. <laughs> And sometimes they had faith, sometimes they didn't have faith. Sometimes they were total screw-ups, sometimes they sort of got it, but they never completely got it. And yeah, Peter's like always going off the rails. I love this. It said Jesus loved them all the way through. He loved them through their bad moments. He loved them in their good moments. You know, the Bible says this in the book of Philippians chapter 1. In fact, one of our worship songs talked about this today. It says that when God begins a work in you, he will continue all the way through. Why does he continue that work? Because he loves you all the way through. When you're having your worst day, doing the thing you're most ashamed of, still loves you. He loved them all the way through. Well, I wish I could just preach that, but I need to move on. Okay, God's got some more background information for you. Verse 2, the evening meal was being served, and the devil, that's Satan, had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to sell Jesus. Now, I can't get over the huge distinction between God and Satan in what we just read. Because what we understand is that Satan looked at the only perfect human being who ever lived. He looked at the only beautiful human being. I mean, Jesus. We're talking about the one who touched blind people and they could see. The one who touched paralyzed people and they could walk. We're talking about the one who stood outside the grave of a dead man, called him out after he'd been dead four days. We're talking about the one who touched the hand of a little girl who had just died and raised her back to life. We're talking about the one who held children in his lap and blessed them even though the disciples tried to shoo them away. We're talking about the one who never turned away anybody who asked for help. We're talking about the only beautiful human being. And yet Satan looked at him and hated him. Not much has changed today. We live in a world where Jesus is almost looked at as a, can I say it, a hater. I mean, I, I, sometimes I get asked to give an invocation for a public function, and they'll ask me to pray a non-sectarian prayer. Let me translate that for you. That means don't use the name of Jesus in your prayer. And I always tell them, look, Jesus goes everywhere I go, so if I come, Jesus is coming with me, just warning you. Now, I want to I just teach you something for a moment. 
you know all of this idea about Jesus being rejected and we can't talk about Jesus in school or any public place or... You know, let, me, let me tell you something. That doesn't happen on a neutral playing field. I'm about to show you why it happens. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is in my devotions this week, I came across this. Satan, who is the God of this world. Now, God, I know God is ultimately sovereign over this, but when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, they surrendered kingdom authority over to Satan. So consequently, he has great influence in our world today. Now look at this. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. It's the people who can least afford it. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Now the Bible says something here. You understand that when people have a wrong impression of Jesus, they didn't get there on a neutral playing field. There is a real Satan. He's not the caricature that you see in art. He's a spirit just as God is the spirit. But the, the God of this world has blinded their minds. Notice that they, they can't do two things. They can't understand who Jesus is, but this is the one that really scares me, New Spring. They can't see the good news. When they hear about Jesus, it's like they go right past the good news and they see the bad news. I mean, for instance, they can hear that Jesus came to forgive us of our sin, and all they hear is, how dare you call what I do sin? They hear that Jesus has died on the cross to keep us out of hell, and they say, how dare God mention a hell? They hear that Jesus came and paid the ultimate price to make a way, and all they hear is, how can you say that he is the only way? Now, I want to tell you today, New Spring, that doesn't happen by accident. We just read what happened. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds, and they can't see the good news. All they can see is the bad news. I don't, I'm so thankful. Aren't you thankful today that if God has made Jesus real in your life, that you can see the good news? Because that's the difference between heaven and hell. So I can't help seeing the difference in Satan and Jesus because Satan looks at the only perfect person and he wants to kill him and Judas sold him for the price of a slave. And on the other hand, I see Jesus who is God looking at these sweaty, smelly screw-ups around the table and even though he's going to be on a cross in a little over 12 hours, all he can think about is how much he loves them. That's the difference between Satan and God. Now let's go to that room. It's Thursday night. They are gathered together to eat a meal. It is, it is a strange juxtaposition because it is a glorious experience, and yet there's tension in the room. Back in the days when I used to do weddings, the family sometimes would tell me, oh, you know, this is going to be wonderful. We're looking forward to it. But, you know, there's one person, you know, there's like a guy would, sometimes it would be a dad. If my ex shows up, this thing could really go bad. You know, and all the flowers are there and, and the music and everything, and people are all looking at the back door to see if she walks in. Or I had that happen with funerals, even yet today. People say, well, you know, the brothers and sisters are kind of fighting, and, and it could be really tense. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a time when there should be a celebration of somebody's life, but there's tension in the room. Well, here you have this moment where Jesus is meeting with his disciples. Jesus' heart's filled with love. He knows what's about to happen to him. And the disciples are there, and they should be celebrating the fact that they're having this precious one of these last few moments with Jesus. And yet there's tension in the room. And, and we, when we open up the Gospel of Mark, we learn why the tension is in the room. You know, Jesus is on his way to this room, and disciples are kind of hanging back out of earshot. And that's kind of stupid when you think about it. You're not. I mean, try to be out of earshot of the Son of God. Oh, they're hanging back. And so 
you know, Jesus kind of like calls him out and said, what were you boys talking about? That's in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. He said, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. They didn't answer him. Because they, on the way, had argued <laughs> about who's greatest. Can you imagine this? In the book of Acts, the Bible says that the people that heard these disciples preach thought that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Who cares about who was first among, among unlearned and ignorant people? I mean, the, the answer was Jesus is first. But the disciples like, you know, well, I'm, you know, I'm smarter than you are, or I've been doing this longer than you have, or I was a success in business before I did this. So they've been arguing about who was the greatest. Now, for further background, Matthew tells us what happened to start the argument. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, the mother of Zebedee brothers, that's James and John, came with her two sons and knelt before Jesus with the request. What do you want, Jesus asked. She said, give your word that these two sons of mine will be awarded the highest places of honor in your kingdom, one at your right hand and one at your left hand. When the ten others heard about this, they lost their tempers, thoroughly disgusted with the two brothers. So the reason why there was an argument about who was the greatest is James and John, two of these boys, got their mama to go talk to Jesus and ask him if those two could be at the top. And the other ten heard about this and freaked out. And I want to tell you, I don't think that they were unhappy that these guys had disrespected Jesus by getting their mama to do this. I think they were just upset they didn't think about asking their mamas to go talk to Jesus. How <laughs> about if they could be first? <laughs> so although this is a very special moment, Jesus is only going to be with them for a short time before he dies. And it was the special moment in the Jewish calendar. There was tension in the room. There were glares and stares. And here's the thing. It was time for somebody to move. It was time for somebody to do something. Work with me for a minute. You ever see pictures from Renaissance era of the last meal? There's Jesus in the middle and there's a long table. Have you ever noticed how the long table just exactly for 13 people? Yeah. I need to let you know there's nothing close to that. People didn't eat at a table like that in those days. What they did was they would, <clears throat> they would lie on their sides in semi-reclining position, lie on the floor. And so I want you to get this picture in your mind. There's 13 men, sweaty men. They've been traveling, and it's time for dinner, and they're all lying on their sides like this. Somebody's feet going to be in your face. Yeah. Now, what would happen in those days is if you had a house like most of you have, you get up in the morning and you go to the middle of your house, which was usually an open area, and there was a bath in that, and you would plunge into that bath and you would get clean. But during the day, you would walk on the roads. And if you studied history, either in high school or college, you know that the Romans about this time had built a long system of roads that snaked all through the world, pretty much, known world. And these roads were rough cut, but in order to smooth out the roads, the Romans would put a layer of soil on top so they'd be easy to walk on or ride on, drive on. And uh, not drive a car, drive carts. <laughs> so um, if you walked on these roads, clearly enough, you'd be walking on loose soil, but that would only be part of it. I want you to understand something, that there would be places where little streams or rivets of water would wash across, and you'd be walking in mud. But there were also animals on these roads. So let us just say in the attempt to be genteel that there would be other fluids and solids on the road. 
So you're walking on these roads and your feet get all muddy. Now, you're in this room. There are 13 guys in this room. They're lying on their sides. Their feet are all over the room in people's faces. It was time for somebody to get up and wash feet. That was part of their culture. I mean, for, for good reason. Now, there was a problem, though. Nobody was going to move. And I'll see if I can explain it to you. If, if you went to a, a wealthy house where people have money and they had servants, and you walked in at dinner time and a servant came up to you and washed your feet, you would know you just met the least important servant in the house. Now, if they didn't have servants but had kids, and I want to see if I can get a shout-out from all the babies in the family in here as I am, if a kid came out and washed your feet, you knew you just met the youngest kid in the house. Do I, are there any other babies in the family here today? Just Stuff just gravitates to you, right? Can I get a witness on that? Now, if there were no servants and there were no kids and there were people gathered in the room, the least important person in the room would get up and wash feet. Now, I've been looking at this text since I was a little kid, and I really believe this. I am convinced that the guys looked around that, and looked around that room and said, you know what? I may not be the most important person in this room, but by George, I'm sure not the least important. And there's a stalemate. I mean, filthy feet, smelling up the room. They're about to eat. Who wants to eat with all that stench in the room and dirty feet? But yet nobody's going to get up and wash feet because it would be an admission. See, here is the problem, and this is the problem that we're now about to move from the Thursday night before Jesus died, and we're about to move to your life and my life. The disciples made the mistake that we made. They attached the significance of tasks with the significance of self-worth. And basically, here's what they said. The washing of feet is way down here, and, and I'm not sure exactly where I am. I'm not sure if I'm up here at the top or I'm close to the top or I'm in the middle, but I know one thing. I'm not down there where that task is. And they, they begin to associate tasks with self-worth. I, I want to make this, let me see if I can make this analogy and I'll, I'll use me an example. In the 32 years almost that I've served as pastor of New Spring, you understand our church grew from about 350 to now around 7,000. But I want you to understand something. Through the years, especially when we were a small church, I've just done a lot of tasks that need to be doing. I, don't, I mean, I didn't do it regularly, but I've cleaned toilets here. I've sanitized toys in the, in the nursery. I've moved furniture. I've done all kinds of manual labor. I've dug holes. I mean, I've I've moved gravel, I've poured, I've poured concrete. I mean, I've done all kinds of tasks. Today, with our church being as large as it is, I'm protected from all those tasks. Others do them. The other day, something kind of <laughs> interesting happened. We're moving equipment, moving piece of equipment, and one of our staff was there already and was waiting for somebody else to come, and I said, hey, let me, let me get in here and help you. And he said, oh, no, Mark, you've got other things to do. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. That staff member was showing honor, and I, I appreciate that. But wouldn't you agree that something very toxic would happen in my soul if I got the idea I was too big to do any of those other things? Because here's the deal. Even though I'm lead pastor, I'm still not too big to clean a toilet. I'm still not too big to sanitize. Because here's the understand. understand there, there's no correlation with task and self-worth. If something needs to be done and you love whatever 
that entity is, whether it's a marriage or a family or a workplace or a friendship, if, if you love someone, then you do what needs to be done. And the problem with the disciples is they were not moving because in their minds, the task was down here and they were up there. So as you look at that room with me, I want you to understand that there were two emotions that governed that, that moment. And they are these. And New Springers, in 21st century America, we really need to hear these. Number one, somebody needs to do something, but not me. Somebody needs to do something, but not me. I just described what's wrong in a lot of marriages. You both agree somebody needs to do something, but not me. Yes, there's a problem, parenting problem. Somebody needs to do something, not me. Some of you know what's wrong with your team at work, and it's fixable, and it's there before you, and everybody on your team agrees. Somebody needs to do something, but not me. I mean, you know what? There was, it was a unanimous awareness on the part of all the disciples that something should be done, and they knew what should be done, but not me. And here's the thing. New Spring, doesn't it surprise you that at least nobody got up and washed Jesus' feet? I mean, you know what? Here's the deal. If you didn't wash, if you're mad at the other disciples and just don't think they're worth it, at least somebody should get up and wash Jesus' feet. There's something about being so selfish that we're afraid to serve that we don't even serve the people that we should serve, who deserve it. Well, God's going to pick up the narrative, and again, He's going to give us backstory before we get there. This is huge. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. Now look at the first word of verse 4. So, so in other words, whatever Jesus is about to do is contingent upon what we just read. Now what did Jesus know? Again, that's that Greek word for full knowledge. Jesus was fully cognizant, number one, that he had come from God. Now here's the deal. You and I are going to God, but we didn't come from God. I mean, I was in Texas last week. We, my wife and I took a few days off before the funeral, and we stayed in downtown Fort Worth. And, and uh, actually, the hotel was right by the hospital where I was born, and I used to pass it. And I'd look up at that old building. That's where I came from, right there. That's where I got my start. I didn't come from God. I discovered America at Harris Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. Now, when I die, I'm going to God. Jesus is different. He was not a human who became God. He was God who became human. So he is sitting there or, or reclining there with the other disciples. And the Bible says he fully knew that he had come from God and then he was going to God. And then this huge line that God at this point already transferred everything over to him. He was in charge of everything in heaven, everything on the earth, everything under the earth. And, then, and Andy Stanley has a great message on this. Some of you from starting point know who Andy Stanley is. Andy said, what do you do when you, know that, when you discover you're the most important person in the room? When you sit down at a table and you look around the table and you realize you're the most important person in the room, what do you do? You know what's interesting? Most of us, when we get a promotion, we instantly want to seize the perks and the privileges that come with that. And so Jesus has now had what would be the greatest of all promotions. He has ran the table and lived a perfect life. He's already committed to going to the cross. And so at this moment, he came from God. He knows he's going back to God, and God has now put everything in the universe under his feet. So what does he do? Look. Verse 4, so he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin, and then he began to wash the disciples' feet. 
Can you see him now? He takes off his jacket, puts a robe in his belt, takes a pitcher, fills up a basin of water. And he, I don't know who that first disciple was, but I promise you he freaked out. Because Jesus, the, the one, the God of glory, reaches down, picks up that dirty foot and begins to wash it. And then notice this. He toweled it off. Anything God starts, he always finishes. Shock silence in the room. I don't know if any of you have been to Carlsbad Cavern when they turn the lights off and it's like nobody's, nobody wants to move. That's what it was like in that room. One by one, these disciples watched as Jesus washed their feet. Nobody's saying anything until Jesus gets to you know who. Yeah, Peter. Yeah, and look at this. This is in verse 6. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't know what I'm doing right now. You'll figure it out later. But look at the next verse. <laughs> and, and I'm going to read this to you the way it is in the Greek. No, you will never wash my feet. Now, here's the thing. When I was a kid growing up and I would hear this story preached in church, I always had the idea, well, I sort of agree with Peter. Because Peter's like, Jesus, you're like way, way, way up here, and, and, and I'm down here, and it's not right for you to have to wash my feet. Now, I want you to understand something that's going on, because this is what some of us do. Peter's doubling down. He's not figuring it out. He's doubling down. Basically, what he's saying is, I don't deserve to wash feet, and you don't really deserve to wash feet, and you washing feet is showing me up. And so you will never Wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, in that case, then we don't have anything to do with each other. And then Peter said, oh, in that case, then just wash my hands and my head and my hair. And then Jesus said, no, feet will be fine. Now, read with me, verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again, and he sat down, and he asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher. Some of you have a translation that says master. That's good. You call me master and Lord, and you're right. Because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Now that you know these things, oh, this is good. I wish I could just preach this. God will bless you if you do them. Now, here's the thing. I'm talking to some husbands right now, and it's light starting to come on for you. And it's like, you know what? I just realized my responsibility is to serve my wife. I'm to be, I'm a, I'm to be a servant. I'm serve her. But you know what? If I did that, she might not even get it. She might not even notice it. Or there's a wife here, and it's like, you know, I just figured out what's going wrong in my marriage. It's like, I, I, need, to, I need to serve my husband. But you know what? He's clueless. And you know what? I, I could serve him, and he'd just, he'd just it'd go in one ear and out the other, and he just wouldn't respond. Or I, I need to serve people at work. You know, it's a difficult kind of toxic thing, and I never really realized that God had placed me there strategically to serve everybody else. But you know what? If I did, if I served them, they might just take advantage of me. Are you a Christ follower? I mean, I'm not trying to be cute about it. I'm just asking you, do you follow Jesus? Are you, are, are you an adherent to this world system, or do you follow Jesus? Because Jesus is trying to get across. Jesus' followers don't think like everybody else thinks. And here's the point that Jesus is getting across. What if you serve somebody and they never get it? Don't worry about it. God will bless you. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather have people reciprocate, or would you rather have the king of glory who can open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that's so great you won't be able to receive it? Would you rather have people bless you or God bless you? I don't know about you, but I'd way rather have God bless me. And the Bible is saying, look, if you get this, 
Don't worry about what people do as a response or reciprocation. The Bible says God will bless you. I know that we have many who are here today who are not New Springers, and I'm so grateful that you're here, but for a moment, I'm going to ask you just to give me permission to talk to New Springers. Anytime our doors are open here at New Spring, over the weekend, we'll have around 7,000 people. But we can't open our doors without seven to 800 volunteers. And even right now, while you're in one of these worship centers, there are people serving you. They're serving in kids' world. They're serving in student ministries. They're serving in coffee ministries. They're serving in parking lots, security. They're serving um, in tech. They're serving in worship arts. All over this campus, hundreds of people are serving so that you can be here. They're, they're washing feet, your feet, your kids' feet. But I want to talk to you about a special ministry for a few moments. I want, to, I want to isolate something. I want to talk to you about guest services. Sometimes I'll have the opportunity to have dinner with friends, and they'll invite me to their home. And there's always that wonderful moment when I ring the doorbell, and they open the door, and they welcome me into their house. All over this building, there are guest services people, and they are standing in the place of Jesus to welcome people in the house. But last year, as you know, if you're a New Springer, you know that we added about 50% to our campus, whole another auditorium, all kinds of area, and our guest services department stayed about the same. And we're starting to feel the pinch of not having everybody that we need to do guest services. And then I'll stand over here at that door in our services and I'll watch something happen and it kind of breaks my heart because in the middle of worship, I'll see people come in those back gallery doors and they'll walk all the way down that outside group of steps looking for a seat and then they'll walk all the way back up looking for a seat. And on a lot of Sundays, there won't be any seats and they'll walk out the back door and it's like, well, I hope they can find their way to the North Auditorium. And here's the thing, you and I here in New Springers, we know where stuff is. But I want you to imagine, and some of you are here today for the first time, and you could say it's not easy to fight the traffic jam to get in here. And it's not easy to figure out where to check on your kids. And it's not easy to figure out how to find a seat. And a lot of us know to be here really early in order to get those things. But for someone coming for the first time, they may not know this. And I know this. I know that if I'm embarrassed, I may never go back again. And every weekend, probably at least 100, if not 200 people come here for the first time. You know what we need? We need new springers to wash feet. And, and, and honestly, some of you have never thought about this before, but I want to encourage, right now, we need 200 more people in guest services. And by the way, this is a great time to say this because as soon as the service is over, there's an orientation just right over here. It's right across from Baby Bay, and you can just go in there and kick the tires when this service is over. But we need you. And we need you in kids' world, and we need you in other places, but especially in guest services right now. And somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't know if I could do that because, you know what, I'm in a hurry to get out of this place, and i got to hurry and get to my car and get to my parking lot so that I can get to the restaurant. Well, what does that say to you? When I read that scripture from Jesus, there were two things that stood out to me, two statements of Jesus. One is in verse 12 when he said, or asked to the disciples, do you understand what I've done to you? Do you understand what I've done for you? When I was in Texas last week, 
I got word that a very special new springer had gone to be with the Lord. <clears throat> and a lot of you won't know the name, but Richard Sawyer. I'll have his service on Tuesday. And I'll have the privilege of saying to the audience there, in all my years of following Jesus, I never knew a worshiper like Richard Sawyer. I'd see him over here. And every song, you would just see Richard wasn't here. He was in heaven. <clears throat> and some of you, even though you didn't know his name, if you've been here whenever we would have a choir here, Richard would always be on the back row and you could, he, just, he was unmistakable. I never in my life knew a worshiper like Richard Sawyer. When I first came to this church 32 years ago, <clears throat> we were praying for Richard to be saved. And I remember the day that Richard accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. It was New Year's Day, 1989. And I've talked to him hundreds and hundreds of times since that time. You know what about Richard? He never got over his salvation. The joy of Jesus was still there. See, here's the deal. Some of us have been saved a long time ago. We got bored with our salvation. That's why we don't serve. Do you understand what Jesus has done for you? And I, I don't ever want to be heavy-handed here, but I mean, I come into worship sometimes and see people just sort of sound, and here's the deal. You're a sweet person and you're a wonderful person and God loves you, but you really don't understand what God has done for you. Five minutes in hell, and you would. Five minutes in hell would change the way you worship. Five minutes in hell and you'd look at serving completely differently. <clears throat> you're a wonderful person, sweet person. God loves you. And you're going to heaven if you're saved. But you, you just don't understand what God has done for you. See, when you understand what God has done for you, the next thing you want to do is do something for him. <clears throat> Years ago, a guy came to this church and a uh, lawyer. In fact, we had a judge here who told me privately, he said he's the best trial lawyer in the city. But when he came to our church, he was an atheist. But he was a seeking atheist. You know what? I'd rather be a seeking atheist than a fake Christian any day of the week. And he was. And he let me know that he, he couldn't believe. He wanted to, but couldn't. So that started a, a series of meetings with him. And in one of those first meetings with him, I asked him, I said, do you have a Bible? He said, no, I don't have one. And I said, well, let me give you mine. Oh, no, he said, I can buy one. But I said, let me give you my Bible. I said, there's a book in there that's written by a lawyer. It's called Romans. And you read that book, and then when you get through, call me, and we'll go to lunch. He called me the next week and said, I've read it three times. When do we go? In our first meeting, I'll never forget, he said, if I believe what I see here, God has made a way for people who are sinners to be forgiven and go to heaven. I said, congratulations, you just honed in on the theme of Romans. But he still struggled, so we would go to lunch. And I still remember the day at Applebee's that the light came on for him. And he trusted Jesus. When he trusted Jesus, Lord and Savior, this guy who was best trial lawyer, according to this judge in our city, he came to me and he said, you know, I don't know much about God, I don't know much about the Bible, but he says, see those guys out in the parking lot with the orange vest? He said, I think I could do that. You see, when you understand what Jesus has done for you, the very next thing for any person of integrity is to ask, what can I do for him? And then the second thing Jesus said is, I've given you an example. 
As I have washed your feet, you ought to wash, thank you so much, you ought to wash one another's feet. And could I just say that to us today? I mean, if you think about this, as Jesus has blessed you, he's given you an example. And if Jesus is not too big to bless you, then you and I are not too big. Um, I got one minute here to go a totally different direction because there's something here that just I can't leave alone. At that, in that room, was one particular person, and that's Judas. Judas had already gone to the leaders and had sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of a slave. Can you imagine that moment where Jesus knelt down before the man who had sold him and began to wash the dirt off his feet? I'm just telling you what I believe. I believe this was Judas's last chance. If Judas at that moment had said, oh, Jesus, I don't know why I've been a faker for three years. I've watched you do every miracle, and I've watched you, and I've been a faker, and I've been stealing. I've been taking money, and I'm so sorry. And, and I've even sold you. I, I've collected money to sell you and turn you over to your enemies. If he had at that moment, while Jesus held his feet in his hands, if Judas had said, Lord, I'm so sorry, I will tell you that Judas would have been there on Pentecost. Judas would have been one of the leaders of the early church in the first. But the problem was he rode his deception all the way to the end. Not even the moment of Jesus personally touching him could cause him to break his mask. I truly believe that Jesus has been here today. And he has touched you and he's touched me. If you're here today and you're saying, I'm not really sure that I have a relationship with God, don't leave this moment. Don't leave it like Judas did. Let this moment be the moment where you say to Jesus, I am a sinner and I believe you died for me. And I may not understand fully everything you did for me, but I want to accept you as my Lord and Savior. And as I close out this service, I'm going to pray a prayer with you, and I'm going to give you that chance to do that. Would you just bow your head with me? And if you're here or in the North Auditorium, or anywhere watching, and you just say, Mark, I want to make sure that I don't leave that room like Judas did. I want to make sure that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Then I want to pray a prayer with you. The important thing is not the words, it's what you mean in your heart. Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe he arose from the grave. Would you forgive me? And would you make me your child? I want Jesus to be my savior and my king. Thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just pray with me, I want to make sure you get a gift. It's it's right back at guest services. It's right here if you're in the South Auditorium. It's around the corner if you're in the North Auditorium. There's a Bible just like I use and a book I wrote to help you understand. All you got to do is go back to guest services where somebody's waiting to serve you and just say, I, I pray with Mark, and they will give you this. If you're looking for the orientation for first impressions or, or guest services, it's just right around that corner. If you're in the South Auditorium, it's right across from Baby Bay. I know they'd be glad to see you. Thank you very much. God bless. We'll see you very soon. <laughs>